Welcome back to How Can You Just Leave Me Standing, the podcast where we go in search of Prince. We'll be talking to band members, artists influenced by the Purple One, academics and fans in an attempt to shine further light on a unique musical legacy. I also want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners from around the world who've been tuning in and downloading the show. From Paris to Detroit, from Bombay to Brazil, we really appreciate your support. Please keep clicking on subscribe, leaving your reviews and spreading the word, whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Ghana, Jio7, or any of the other great platforms out there. The music for today's show has been very generously provided by Gavin Calder, True Funk Soldier. It features on the album Deep Field by Balveda and is available on the Bandcamp website. Following a 25-year career, Beverly Knight MBE is now firmly established as the UK's Queen of Soul. Raised in Wolverhampton, she broke through in the mid-1990s with her brand of B-Funk before a series of successful albums propelled her into the public consciousness. In the last two and a half decades, she has won numerous awards, continued to perform live, become a musical theatre star in The Bodyguard, and she's also presented on TV, on radio, including a show dedicated to gospel music, is an active philanthropist supporting many great causes and has collaborated with too many artists to mention. She's pure gold and we're delighted to have her on the show today. Beverly, welcome. Oh, that's an intro. Thank you very much. What, what a career. I mean, do, do you, I, I guess you don't reflect on it too much because I know you're a I know you're a restless soul and you like to keep pushing on and achieving things, but do you ever stop for a second and think, wow, I've achieved quite a lot there? Do you know, honestly, no. <laughs> I just, I think of what I do and I'm like, right, I've, I've done that. Okay, what's next? What am I doing next? What am I doing next? It's always, what am I doing next for me in my career? Um, it's, it's a funny thing to be a, a, a creative because you barely, like you're saying, you barely stand still to actually look at the creation. You create it, and when that's done, you, you're already way down the line thinking of the next thing that you're, you know, the, the next project. It, it's, a, it's a weird, weird thing. It's everybody else who kind of takes stock for you. And yeah. then once in a while, someone will say, oh, you know, you've done this, you've achieved that, and you'll go, Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful career, you know, and you've done so many. It's great that you've done so many things. You know, you've definitely not kept all your eggs in one basket. Um, you know, more power to you. I was going to just actually firstly ask you, how, how are you doing sort of health wise in this crazy mm-hmm. time and, and what's going on work wise as well? What sort of stuff are you working on? Oh, God. Well, health wise, I am happy to report that I am fine and um, all is well this crazy time it affected me in so much as my mom was very very ill with it my brother was very ill and both are now fully recovered and you know you you gotta you know feel blessed I my own health was unaffected thus far not taking any chances and um you know just kind of pushing on like everybody else um it's been a weird time for the entertainment industry as a whole as an umbrella and the arts uh no support from the government and uh, you know kind of you can retrain oh yeah well thanks I don't think I will retrain yeah. um but 
other than that, you know, I have been way more fortunate than just about um, everybody else that I know around me. And certainly most people, I've been way more fortunate because I have been able to do other things and turn my hand to other things. And work-wise, I'm always doing something. Today, I will be going into a workshop situation, which is uh, for a musical, which will be out next year. Uh, so workshop is the writers are still getting the script right and the direction. And the only way to really figure out if it works as a piece is if you get actors in to, you know, do the piece and then you can rip it apart. And that. so that's that's the workshop. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, before I even do that, I have another musical, which I'm in this year, which is about uh, Faye Treadwell, who managed the Drifters. It's a story of her life, which is a dynamic, fantastic story. And I'm also doing lots of festivals, outdoor ones. So no risk of those being cancelled, thank God. I saw that on your website, yeah. yeah I saw you yeah. doing some gigs in the park. Sounds good. Fantastic yeah. bill that you're on with various other people as well. Absolutely. And I, it's so important for people like us to reaffirm, you know, who we are, what we are, what we do. We're supposed to be the joy givers of the world, you know, and um, when you haven't been able to deliver any joy to people in a meaningful way on a stage, you feel like your throat's been cut, you know. I can't wait to just be on stage in front of people and just celebrate being here, being alive, being present, you know. I think it's fair to say you are a very positive force. I mean, anybody that follows your stuff on social media will know that you're always, frankly, spreading positivity into the world on a daily basis. So if anybody doesn't follow you on social media at the moment, I would encourage you to check out what Beverly shares all the time. I want to go back to the the, the start a little bit with you now. And obviously, we, we, are, we are going to talk about Prince in depth as well. But just to understand where your sort of appreciation of Prince came from. Um, mm-hmm. Talking before about your sort of strict church upbringing, and I-, I wanted to ask you, do you remember when you first heard Prince? And it's a two- two-part question, really. Mm-hmm. And is there any way in which the love of Prince's music was a slight act of rebellion on your part, do you think? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, um, let me hold part two in my head while I go to part one. When I was growing up, I come from a, you know, pretty typically Jamaican household. Born, I'm born here in the UK, but, you know, raised by parents who are absolutely Jamaican. My grandma um, lived across town. So my mum's younger siblings um, all lived with her, um, seven of them in, in their house. And so every single weekend without fail, go to grandma's house, hang out with my older um, aunts and uncles. My mom's, two of my mom's youngest brothers, my uncles Gary and my uncles Hayden, they were the music loons of the family. Now, weirdly for my family, that branch of the, of the family couldn't sing a note. Um, my mom's half brothers, you know, the, the more biological side of the family, they could all sing, but this branch couldn't sing, but they loved music, they appreciated music. And my uncle Hayden, had the attic room so um, and that's where all these records were so I was 
up there all the time as a tiny child. It's like, Uncle, if you couldn't find where Bev was in Grandma's house, go up to Uncle Hayden's room. She's in there going through the records, going digging in the crates. Uncle Hayden had um, all kinds of wonderful stuff. He had Bowie, he had Dylan, another Minneapolis legend, and Prince. And Prince was the one that I was drawn to. He was the one that I was most fascinated by because Prince sang things that I didn't quite understand, but instinctively I knew they were the kind of things that my mum and dad perhaps wouldn't want me to hear. So, but but there was something about the sound and you know, I mean, I, I was a, a, a soul, R&B, hip hop, funk, absolute aficionado, even as a very, very young child, that was what I sought to emulate as well as all the pop stuff that was around at the time. And when I pulled out the 1999 album, this big double album with these little eyes peering at me. There's something about it that would just, it just struck me. And so, you know, Uncle Hayden would play it and I'd get into, I must've been about eight, nine, something like that, around nine, right, nine or 10. And the music just, it like, it enveloped me. It just overtook me. It had shades of everything that I wanted to, to be when I was an adult, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to sing, you know, and there was everything about that sound that just, I don't spoke to me. And then, so I started to really get into his music. And the song that really took me was, was Little Red Corvette. And I can remember seeing that for the first time on TV, the actual video, a couple years later, MTV came to the UK and my uncle being my uncle, you know, first to have it. So I would just sit in his room and watch MTV all day. I saw Little Red Corvette. I actually saw the video, took my breath away, just took my breath away. And I was like, my God, this is incredible. Around that time, Purple Rain was, was kind of coming in. And um, so you're talking about me as an 11 year old now. And that, that made the whole kind of obsession complete. That was it. There was no one else in my world, in my universe. You know, I was kind of that in that prepubescent age and all of that. And Prince was everything. He was, I was going to grow up and I was going to marry him. I was going to make music with him. And we would have little musical babies. And, Everything, everything about my life from that point on was Prince. At uh, least two of those came true, I would say, Beverly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know, I just, when I think about it now, the, the, the child that I was and the absolute musical fixation and, you know, teenage crush, um, crush fixation, and I think of where my life has gone as an adult, I still can't quite believe all these things happened, but we'll, we'll get into that. But definitely there was that element of my mom and dad would not like me listening to this. I got to listen to it even more. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Uh, and I, w I won't allude to either of our ages, but we, we must be similar ages because yeah. the, the phases you're describing are very similar. And in fact, yes. it was really interesting to you talk about vinyl there because I can remember my mum and dad, I think it was mainly my mum, to be fair, hmm. used to leave old vinyl records lying around. 
Right. And I, I sort of adopted the record player in the house. And there was an amazing, there was a few mm. amazing albums, some of which went missing or were never seen again. Like there was a copy <laughs> of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, you know, like Standard. the trench coat, you know, in the rain and the trench yeah, coat. In and the that rain, was really, looking up with the beard, I yeah. I don't ever remember listening to it. I just remember the iconic look of it and thinking, oh, mm-hmm. that, that looks incredible. And there was a, there was a brilliant Elvis Greatest Hits album and it was pink yeah. vinyl. And this oh, wow. vinyl, it was like candy. It looked like you could eat it. It was just, it was so compelling. And it was like Elvis's great, 40 greatest. And But there was all sorts of things. Like my mum was really into like um, Rufusized by Chaka Khan and Songs in the Key of Life, like all, yeah, lots yeah. of great stuff. But my mum also never forgave me for running toy cars around Songs in the Key of Life as a child, no. which, which scratched all the vinyl. No! I was like, Mom, you know, I, I wasn't aware I was doing that at the time. So that was no, that was obviously yeah. an act of musical heresy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really love what you were saying about vinyl. And it's exactly the same for me. I remember coming up through high school. But funny enough, we, and I don't know if you did this as kids in, in Wolverhampton, but right. I can remember a really hilarious phase in the mid-80s where kids were getting bits of cardboard out and sort of doing breakdance moves out in the streets yeah. with like a flat yeah. tape recorder. You know, it was like White oh, Lines okay. by Grandmaster Flash. I remember Michael Jackson being big as well. And and I remember saying to my mum, oh, I'm never going to like this guy Prince as much as Michael Jackson. He's not even in the same universe. And then like the, and then the needle just kind of went, <laughs> you know, then it's Prince funny. came kind of storming past, you know, which is quite yeah. interesting. It is interesting because, I mean, you know, like you in Wolverhampton, I mean, you know, um, Goldie, actor, painter, God, just all round dude um he was raised for a lot of his life in Wolverhampton because he was from Warsaw but he came to Wolverhampton because much bigger and so I used to stand around as a kid watching um him you know and the crew that he was part of they would all get the vine the the little lino and the you know the the cardboard out in the middle of Wolverhampton town centre in Dudley Street they'd be break dancing and that so that was like a backdrop of my life and but Prince was very much at the forefront. And of course, when I talked about other pop stuff that I listened to, Michael Jackson was p- part of that. Of course, like, like I think just about everybody of, of our age group, you know, we, in the mid eighties, you listened to Michael Jackson, a little later on came Whitney. I was already into Shaka Khan. I was already trying to emulate that full chest voice in my little my <laughs> little bev trying to reach those crazy notes you know um but it, it's just it was a wonderful time but like you said I mean I, I I I loved what Michael Jackson did I really appreciated it I loved the the the, the driving kind of funk of it especially um off the wall you know um thrill obviously blew him up but you know I really liked off the wall but then when Prince came through, you know, in such a huge way, when Purple Rain took off, I can still remember watching Top of the Pops and seeing the video for When Doves Cry, which of course was more or less just like a trailer, you know, and I'm thinking there's no baseline, there's no baseline. And this is the child in me. I was already, you know, thinking along those kind of creative, uh, production, if you like, lines. I didn't know it was production, but you know, that's just how my brain was working. I was like, there's no baseline, there's no baseline. 
the guitar's incredible. Oh my God, the drum machine, you know, or the drum pattern, you know, when I was a kid, because I didn't know it was a Lynn drum machine back then, but I was so fascinated by it and I was so hooked. And it was like, as cool as Michael Jackson was and, you know, Madonna doing a thing and, and all these other people, everyone just melted away. I just, I needed to understand what the creative process was that made this utterly sexy man that I just was blowing my mind. Um, I needed to understand the musical process. I needed to get inside it. So I listened obsessively. Thank God for Uncle Hayden, because I could do that in his house. I couldn't really do that so much. Your mum's mum and dad would be like, turn it off. I don't want to see that in my house. Turn it off. But um, I think, yeah, I think people, <laughs> you know, you mentioned that. I think people forget now with the passing of time, you know, how all popular culture just gets absorbed. Yeah. And then you're looking back, you know, I mean, it's yeah. shocking to think we're looking back on Prince's career, but as we are, um, yeah. you forget how edgy it was and how mysterious it was. And like you say, I think that was part of the hook for me. It was like, God, who, who on earth is this? It's like, it's like somebody from another planet, basically. I mean, I remember seeing the 1999 video and thought, these guys are aliens. Like they've just beamed down on a spaceship, basically. I just, what, yeah. what the, you know, what is this? It's just like, this is out there. It was really good fun uh, to hear that connection with Goldie and your thoughts about growing up in Wolverhampton. Do you think in, in some ways for your career, was there a bit of an advantage growing up outside of some of the really big centres like London, Birmingham, Manchester? Mm -hmm. Did that help you in terms of your own identity, do you think? Absolutely. You know, so many people say to me, um, oh, if you were born in the United States, you know, your career would be this, blah, 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 blah. it might be, but you know what? I wouldn't make the music I make now. And I wonder if I would be as much of a, of a, of a Prince freak as I am, you know, growing up in Wolverhampton, um, down the road was Birmingham, home of heavy metal, you know, a lot of prog rock came through there. So I already had that in my back pocket, you know, that, that heavy guitar sound. That was not alien to me at all in any way, shape or form. Whereas a black woman living in London, perhaps it would have been more alien because uh, a lot of the, my, my well, my black, uh, my family, you know, that lived in, in London, you know, they were seen as cooler. Um, like my cousin Donny, massive um, uh, Michael Jackson fan and a, and a songwriter and an artist in his own right, but he had a clique around him and they only listened to certain kinds of music. It was much more, I guess what I'm trying to say is it was much more kind of tribalist. In Wolverhampton, it wasn't tribalist because there wasn't really enough of a, of a scene to have a, a, a tribe, you know, to speak of. B-boys, you know, doing their break dancing, who lived in Heathtown in a particular bit of Wolverhampton. But where I lived in the lovely, slightly more affluent southern bit of Wolverhampton, very leafy and green, um, what musical tribe? I was a musical tribe all by my damn self. And my tribe was Prince, the end. You know, that was it. So it it, it allowed me to have the freedom to 
love who I wanted to love without thinking, will my mates approve? Is, you know, is it is it cool as in, you know, whoever's popular for the day? I didn't care. I didn't care. In 1988, I was an exchange student to the US for a month, went to Portland, Oregon, and almost every single um, girl who was with me at that time was bros, mad. Like everything was bros. I turned up with Sign of the Times on cassette and Love Sexy, which had just been released. That was all I was interested in. And I drove everyone mad with Prince. I did not care. I ha- it was my own tribe, my own world. I thank God I'm a Wolverhamptoner because it freed me of the cliquey, tribal, conventional uh, kind of mindset of what black people are supposed to listen to, you know, and what they're supposed to appreciate. And, you know, I, I was listening to heavy guitar stuff as much as I was listening to, you know, funk driven, whatever, Bowie, you know, I, it freed me of all of that. And it freed me to be a massive Prince fan. And it also meant that if anybody said one syllable that I deemed negative about Prince, I'd come down on them with the wrath of God. Because <laughs> I knew my stuff. You were like a Midlands Prince police force. I was. <laughs> it's like Purple Patrol. I love that. Purple Patrol. Yeah. Where's my, where's so, my hat with purple patrol? Exactly, like yeah, that. we need to get you one, I reckon. Yeah. You broke through in the 1990s, I think it's fair to say. Um, yeah. what, 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 do you, what do you remember about sort of breaking through? And obviously success mm. is a very broad term and you'll have your own sort of feeling about it. But what, what do you remember when you sort of had, you were signed when you had a first release out? You know, mm-hmm. what, what did it feel like to, to hear your stuff on the radio? What was, what was your, just your general reflection on that now, sort of looking back? My overwhelming feeling was my absolute naivety <laughs> about the music industry and what it entails and everything. All I knew is I wrote songs and I wanted to sing them and I was a big old extrovert and I wanted to be on a stage and any stage I could be on, I was gonna find my way to it. That's all I knew. The, the, the business of making music ain't nothing, you know? And, and it cost me and every story, every um, artist has that kind of story to tell, uh, our man included. But, you know, it, it, when I look back, I think what a crazy time I was so, young and clueless and joyful about the fact that I could make music, you know, and I was earning some pennies from it too, yay. Uh, Hearing myself on the radio for the first time was mind-blowing. I mean, (laughs) mind-blowing. Hearing my own voice back to me, I'll be honest, the first thing I thought was, oh, I sound really squeaky. Must have, must have been surreal, right? I mean, and and this was. was the era, I mean, correct me, just to place this in context for everybody listening, this was the kind of era where Mary J. Blige was breaking through in the US with like those Puff Daddy type recordings and there was a little bit of New Jack Swing in there maybe and we, yeah, yeah. in the UK you had like the acid jazz thing maybe That's coming right. to the fore yeah. or just still being around. Or 
just before me and then it, that was kind of it was still that Jamiroquai was kind of holding the torch for that kind of sound. Omar had been holding the torch, you know, since the beginning. Yeah. Um, much ignored, much underrated, which gets on my nerves. But anyway, that's another conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, well, let's give a shout out to Omar. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. But around that time, you're absolutely right. Mary J. Blythe is breaking through in the States. Puffy and his absolute onslaught on the charts was happening. You had SWV, the whole Blackstreet, um, the Blackstreet trilogy, <laughs> you know, had come, Jodeci had come through. Just as I was kind of really finding my way, you had D'Angelo come through, who I loved. Why? He reminded me of Prince. You know, that was a, that was a major thing for me. Yeah. Oh yeah, brilliant. Love D'Angelo. Like both those the seminal albums are just mind-blowingly good. Absolutely correct. So I came through in this wonderful time where uh soul and RB was it was still not really appreciated by the British mainstream. The British mainstream were losing their mind to Britpop. It was blur and oasis and lads gazing at their shoes playing guitar or, or kind of bowling around Manchester. It's almost a partial mod revival, wasn't it? I remember Paul Weller yeah. sort of starting to make his comeback at the time as well. He That's started right. re-establishing himself with Wildwood and stuff like that, right. right? Exactly. Exactly. That, that was exactly the time. So um, I guess that was where I was beginning to find a tribe because I was just making this music that I wanted to make. I um, quite sweetly called it, you know, my first album, The B-Funk. And the next thing I know, everyone's talking about this B-Funk album and writing about this girl from some place that nobody's heard of called Wolverhampton. They vaguely knew about the football team and that was about it. Um, and, you know, I, I found myself being part of the a cool kids, if you like, crowd which didn't, if I'm honest, sit comfortably with me because I've, I've never seen myself as being a cool kid. I'm not a cool kid. I'm a musical nerd. That's what I am, really. I certainly didn't have their patter and I certainly didn't dress the way they did, but I, I just, I was a woman who had this, this voice and, you know, some songs that I, I, I'd written and was having fun performing them and I came through at a really fantastic time. Let's place this in a, a Prince context as well because Prince had had a massive start to the 90s you know he had Batman late 80s then you had like That's Diamonds right. and Pearls and the symbol album so a dark cloud started <laughs> to gather over the uh, the Warner Brothers relationship. Yeah, I mean right. it's interesting because I suppose you were just coming in to the music industry and mm. you were seeing your hero prince say look you know i'm i'm done with this industry yeah. uh you know artists free yourself i mean how, how did prince kind of influence you as an artist do you think in terms of how you approach the music industry in later years i wish i had been more attuned to the business side of where he was and understanding how the music industry worked, or should I say didn't work for artists and to this day still doesn't really work for artists. Um, I was completely focused and fixed on 
what the music he was making um, as opposed to what was going on behind the scenes. I didn't really understand it to a, to a full extent. Had I have done so, perhaps I wouldn't have got myself into some of the scrapes that I then got into um, with my own, you know, earlier uh, recording career. Um, but uh, in terms of how he influenced me and my own music and my own approach to making music and performance, it was, I can't overestimate the influence. I looked at his band. I wanted a band that was like his, a multicultural band. I wanted a band that had as much fun as he did <laughs> on stage in my songwriting. Uh, when I was drawing for, for inspiration for, you know, background vocals, I'd always go to Prince because he had the best BVs ever. The way he would arrange them, the way he would have really tight, focused, crisp um, harmonies, like nothing I'd ever heard before. And um, those are just a couple of examples of, of where I would kind of, if, if, if I could have walked around with a, a t-shirt that said, what would Prince do? That was my life. Musically, it was, what would Prince do? How would he approach this, you know? And consequently, my own background vocals have become a very integral part of my sound, you know? And that's down to Prince, that's down to Prince. Yes, it's down to my gospel upbringing, way that I will place vocals in any given song or in any given line in a song that's that's all down to him that is all down to Prince no two ways about it I I I, I, I listened to him and I studied his music like it was an ology <laughs> Prince-ology I, I want one of those t-shirts now that says what would Prince do I'm, I'm with you on that I think you can apply that to a lot of aspects of life not just music absolutely What was the first Prince concert you went to? Mine was the new tour. I was really gutted I never got mm. to see Love Sexy. But I remember seeing it on TV and having my mind blown yes. and seeing yes. Sign of the Times in the cinema and thinking, oh my God, yes. this is incredible. Same. Amazing. So at the Cameo Cinema in Edinburgh. But yeah, what was your first concert? Tell, tell me about that. Where was it? So in the first time I actually saw Prince was on a <clears throat> video and that was Sign of the Times. And uh, sorry, yeah, not Sign of the Times. That was Love Sexy. I saw Sign of the Times after I had seen Love Sexy. Uncle Hayden, champion of my life. <laughs> he had everything. He had everything. I like this guy. Oh, my Uncle Hayden's absolute quality. Just seeing him coming out of the car dressed as Mozart, I was gone. I was gone with the spots. The Liberace um, sort of look at the piano and stuff with like the that. The hair tied back, the curly bits with the ribbon at the back. All right, oh yeah, the God. sign of the times kind of thing, yeah. And and no, but and then on on Love Sexy, he had uh, the the bit where he gets out the car and his hair's just tied back like this. Oh my God, 
oh my God, I think about it now and I could melt. That incredible, incredible, yeah. incredible, incredible. And just all of that. And that was the first time I'd seen Sheila E and Kat. And then when, you know, later on, I went back and saw Sign of the Times and like you saw it at the cinema and wept and wept and wept because I just couldn't believe how magnificent it was. But the first time I actually saw him, saw him, like you, nude tour. So I, I said to my mom that I was going to be staying over at a friend's house. <laughs> your love. I got on a coach to Manchester Main Road <laughs> on my Jack Jones, our lad, and went to see him. I, I, such was the obsession. I went to see him. Brilliant. And my mom didn't find out until years later, till I fessed up in an interview. <laughs> my mom just never found out. But I had to be there, got on the coach, National Express, all the way up to Manchester, and just the Pasadenas were supporting, they were opening. And my, honestly. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. I, I remember feeling quite lightheaded. I was gonna, I was gonna go. I was gonna, cause I screamed myself stupid and I was gonna go and, but thankfully I didn't pass out. But um, you know, I was so, blown away completely, completely. And I mean, my obsession was such at that point that my whole wall, you know, the mom and dad, they couldn't control me at this point. Yeah, my I'm with you. Was, <laughs> it was, there wasn't, an, uh, there wasn't a centimeter spare. Prince was everywhere. Prince was on the ceiling. I'd managed to stand on the bed and push the, you know, get the, the, the poster so that when I lay in bed, I was looking up at him. He was everywhere, absolutely all over my room. There was one poster of Steve Bull, the footballer, because I, I like football. And that, and then everything else was Prince. That's awesome. Prince and Steve Bull. I mean, who else could say that? I know. <laughs> but honestly, Coming back from that concert, there was a new level. There was a new level of, of love and appreciation and determination to seek out every single bit of princeness that I could find, you know? I was just going to say, did you listen to Bootlegs? Did you ever hear any of the underground kind of recordings? I mean, a lot of them have come out since. Did you ever hear live tapes or like the odd unreleased thing or...? There was um, a tape that my friend from school had, well, it was my friend's brother, um, my friend Nicola Samuels, um, uh, her brother Gary was the other person, you know, there was a few of us at school who I migrated to because it was like, oh my God, you like Prince? Yeah, I like Prince, yay! You know, yeah, Gary absolutely. was two years older <laughs> than me, so Gary had all the tapes, all the stuff, and would always do me my little my little C90 copy, you know, the copy of a copy. So it was absolutely terrible. And I remember the first time I heard, I'll see you tonight in all my dreams. Oh, yeah. That was on a Gary tape. It was the worst recording ever. That was the first time. Doesn't matter, though. I didn't care, you know. It was just, oh, I had to have 
anything, anywhere, you know, I had to have it. See, I'm, I'm getting shivers thing. just hearing you talk about that, honestly. But because the, it's the memory, it's the euphoric yeah. recall, isn't it, of hearing but, those things for the first time, you know. There's something about being at that impressionable age and being at high school as well. Like, I mean, I've, I've got quite a funny, just I'll tell you a very brief tale about the Black Album. Because oh, my God. We, yeah, we've all got a story about the Black Album. Yeah, well, we, I, it'd be interesting to see if your story's similar, but we... Yeah. There was a record shop at the top of Leith Walk in Edinburgh called Vinyl Villains. Yeah. Um, it's gone now, but it was it was a brilliant little place. Yeah. And FOP was the other big one, which started mm -hmm. in a broom cupboard on Coburn Street. But Vinyl Villains sold bootleg copies of the Black Album. And, of course, it was just made-up artwork because they were just... Yeah. But, they, you know, they, they sold official releases as well. But yeah, it was hilarious yeah. because there was a Black Album and it had two extra tracks. It had the original cut of Old Friends for Sale yeah, still yeah. one of my favourite ever Prince. Oh, what, oh my and god! Then, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. That's, honestly, and it's and all my good, dreams yeah. as well. But but here's yeah. the funny bit, right? The black album had been transferred, unbeknownst to us, at the wrong speed. It was too fast, so it was sped up. So it was basically like Prince sang the whole thing, like almost like Mickey Mouse vocal. Like it was like a <laughs> male vocal, but slightly up a notch from that. But we, oh my we god! Know. We thought that was the correct speed, so we had cassettes with it all on that got dubbed. Yeah. And when I finally, and it was hilarious, honestly, I wish I still had a copy of it. But when we heard the actual thing years later, I said to a guy, he gave me a CD of it. I went to a record fair and I said, "Mate, this is at the wrong speed. It's way too slow. He sounds like Darth Vader on this." But it was, <laughs> it was because all the bootlegs and like somebody had rushed them out. It's so. There's there's a whole the masses of kids in Scotland who were into Prince heard the Black Album at completely their whole speed, oh, <laughs> and it didn't matter because we all loved it yeah. anyway. That's the point, yeah. you know. Like you were saying, it didn't matter about the quality of it. It was the mystery of it. It was like, what the hell is this? The mystery of it. It was. I mean, it was so grainy. Old friends for sale, particularly. Mm. You know, the the quality was like. Oh yeah. You know, horrible, but. I didn't care, the song, the song, the song. And I can remember, Gary gave me the copy of the copy and I had my Walkman and um, up into my room, Walkman on. And I can remember putting on particularly the, the Black Album, you know, cause that was the big talk me. There was a lovely lad called Richard Everett who um, we did lots of the drama productions at school together. And any little break we had, He'd be practicing his spins, split up, just like Prince, you know, and I just stand there watching him like, I can't do that, but I can sing, you know. Um, anyway, um, I can remember listening to Black Album and hearing Bob George for the first time. Oh my God. And it was the recording, the fact that his vocal was pitched down which was blowing my mind for a start. You Imagine know. it sped up, Beverly. I said the pitch down sped up. That's nuts. I, can't. I wish you had that because I really want to hear that now. But, oh, my God. Just hearing that, you know, and I was like, oh, God, there's lots of naughty words in there that, you know, and my mum and dad. And I was like, oh, I'm like in this secret society listening to yes. this really amazing thing that, you know, and I couldn't share it with all my other mates because they just didn't get it. They were, in my opinion, this, the snob, the musical snob now, in my opinion, they were too busy listening to more inferior stuff, you know, bass stuff, you know, 
uh, kind of nursery rhyme stuff and here's me listening to stuff which is on a whole different plane and, and oh my god so I only had a few people I could really talk to about you know the intricacies of that particular of that particular song and oh, no, I, t- I completely agree. I mean, I, I, it, honestly, when you said secret society, I was going to say exactly the same thing. I mean, yeah. what, what teenager doesn't love danger? And it's like, oh, I know about this stuff. This is cult. This is underground. Prince yeah. has this whole other life. Yeah. Where the recordings are like almost as good as the stuff he's putting out, in some cases better, which is like yeah. it's mind-blowing in itself. Before I forget, oh, yeah. I must ask you about the Café de Paris which was an after show that took place in the late 1990s. Uh, mm-hmm. Prince played a show, I think it was the New Power Soul era, and he did a little show after hours um, with Chaka Khan, Larry Graham, some of Sly and the Family Stone, who is, which is a group I love. And mm. the reason I wanted to ask you about it is because I think it was the first time I was aware that you were really a super fan of Prince. And that's because I was there uh, in fairly close proximity to the stage. I can still see myself on the video, which is quite surreal as I'm, as somebody 20 years younger. But you were in the balcony completely rocking out to Dougie Fresh and all these things. And I remember I was with my wife's friend Elaine at the time, and we were looking up at you and thinking, wow, this, you know, Beverly Knight is like a massive Prince fan. This, <laughs> this is just incredible, you know? And it felt like you were kind of one of us, one of the, the fans, you know, you'd, you'd shed your kind of, I'm recording artist Beverly Knight, and it was like mm-hmm. you were Mega Prince fan for the night. I mean, mm-hmm. what are your memories of that show and how did you come to be there? Were you invited by the record label or did Prince put you on the list or what, what's, what's <laughs> no, no. how did you come to be there? I was there. I had to be there. It's, it's, it's a funny thing because I do, you know, it, I, I wear a, many hats and a hat that I am happy to put on and take off and park is Beverly Knight, you know, recording artist, da, 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 da. I'll put that on when I need to be that human and then it comes right off. And then I'm back to just being Bev. And when I'm Bev, I'm Prince fan. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm Prince fan when I'm Beverly Knight as well, but, I mean, in my everyday life, going to the post office or whatever, I'm just Bev, who is a Prince fan. So in that time and at that moment, I was everybody else in that room, just a fan, a massive, massive fan. And I mean, those nights, those after shows and just the experience of being there, and having a whole bunch, not just Prince, but he was so generous about giving time and honoring other artists, you know. Shaka, come on now, Shaka God, are you, what? Yeah, you know, it was amazing you... seeing them together. I mean, that, that was a massive thrill for me, I've got to be honest. Huge, because this is a woman whose voice I, had studied and you know there was a just a clutch of female singers that I would kind of go to and learn you know learn the tricks of the trade if you like from Shaka was one of them Aretha Whitney and but particularly Shaka because she was so funk driven and had so much power behind her and to see her there was like 
okay. Uh, is this? Am I? Am I really? That is goose. That is goosebumps, isn't it? I mean, really. <laughs> is this happening? Just absolutely incredible. I can't. It's hard to put into words just how incredible. Do you have a favourite after show or Prince live concert that you saw? I mean, I'll quantify this by saying before you worked with him. There was a place that I I couldn't tell you where it was now, but it, I was actually in France and he had just played um, the Zenith. And then he did, and I was with a group of, of, of friends at Secret Society. And we had just followed the crowd, because I don't know, Paris from one end to the other, followed the crowd to this place where he was um, doing a show. And I know, you know, Paris, looking back now, Paris was one of his favorite places to, to play. And that show was ridiculous because I'm surrounded by Parisian fans now and people like me who had flown in from all over the gap. And I thought, you know, UK fans were, were nuts, but they were, that was some different level. And, you know, Prince was obviously feeding from and responding to those fans because that show was madness. Make sure you join us in part two when Beverly shares her first meeting with Prince backstage. She also discusses supporting him during his famous residency at the O2 in London.